one of the things that I think is so wonderful about yoga is that it teaches you how to be in your own physical body. And if we can take that away from being all medical and clinical, slow down, listen to yourself, your physical self, experience the sensations of being in your body is so valuable. Oh, hi. Thanks so much for tuning in. I'm Walt Drennan, and you're listening to Ask Me About My Type 1, the Q&A podcast all about type 1 diabetes. So while I've been doing all this quarantining lately, I've spent a lot more time with myself and my thoughts, and I started noticing how much of my mental attention and energy seemed to center around my physical self, and specifically how my body felt as a way for me to keep tabs on my blood sugar, which then reminded me of pretty much every single class of yoga I've ever taken, because it's really the only other place I've ever heard this idea of a mind-body connection being openly addressed before, but in an entirely non-Type 1-y context. I mean, for me, as a person who has to literally monitor one of my body's very vital biological functions to stay alive, the mind-body connection, the way it's talked about in yoga class, was always so hard for me to fully grasp. Even now, I'm thinking about all of the yoga classes where I was more concerned with what my sugar was doing, or if my devices would go off suddenly, to the point that I was tuned out of the class altogether. So how do I reconcile the type 1 need for the mind to monitor the body and the yoga concept of the mind connecting to the body in a non-medical sense while stuck inside during a global pandemic? Well, by podcasting about it, of course, because I'm a millennial and that's how we do things. And to do that this week, I sit down with mind-body experts and yoga instructors Maya Bremer and Ashley Belouz. Maya, my type 1 guest, has been practicing yoga for nearly her entire life because she grew up in India before she was diagnosed with her type 1 just before she started college here in the States, where she is now a yoga instructor in Washington State. And my type 9 guest, Ashley, is a yoga instructor in Vancouver. She hosts the Kilter and Mint podcast, where she regularly woos listeners into going to yoga classes and even teaches a brand new form of restorative yoga called philosophy, which she'll talk more about during the podcast. Together, we discuss all the ways that yoga can help people of all the types by getting us out of our heads and reconnected with ourselves. But as always, before we get into the podcast, I have this week's five-star listener review. This week's review comes from Mackie Lee 242926 so I can be as specific as possible. And Mackie titled their review, Love Learning About Everyone's Different Experiences with Chronic Illness. Mackie wrote, I started listening when my friend from high school shared she was a guest on the podcast. Since then, I've subscribed and been listening each week. It's very interesting to learn as a type nun and to hear how different people deal with chronic illness in a general sense, as I do have a chronic illness as well. It's always such a good conversation and a podcast I enjoy listening to. Thank you so much for your review, Mackie, and for listening. That's one of the biggest reasons that I started the whole podcast in the first place, helping type nuns like you find more ways to relate to the type 1 experience, which it sounds like you're doing, so thank you for letting me know that. And if you'd like to hear your review read on a future episode of Ask Me About My Type 1, just click on that fifth star on iTunes and let me know what you think about the show. It helps so much more than you think and gets the show recognized in the charts so that we can have more type 1s and type nuns like Mackie join in on the conversation. And as always, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you're listening to this podcast, but especially if you're listening on iTunes. Be sure to follow the show on Instagram at AskMeAboutMyType1 and visit the website at AskMeAboutMyT1.com to see how you can become a guest on a future episode. And just to let you know, this podcast is a bit longer than normal, so you won't be hearing from me at the end of this one. 
Now, I hope everyone is staying safe and healthy while you hold up wherever it is you're listening to this from. And I thank you again so much for tuning in. Now, here's the episode. Hello, Maya. Hello, Ash. Thank you both for joining me today. Hi. Good to be here. <laughs> you know you know, this is going to happen. It's going to be like we both just end up talking over each other. It, oh. uh, we'll, we'll adjust accordingly. <laughs> All right. Thank you. So today's episode or this week's episode is all about yoga. It's something that I've been doing off and on. And I think nowadays it's a lot more prevalent. Back when I started, it wasn't as big as it is now. There weren't as many options for it. There weren't as many types of yoga. And I think now it's a really great place for people with type one, like myself and others to start getting more active because it's a type of activity that encourages practicing as opposed to getting things done and it's something that you can work on which is something that i think relates to type one a lot so i wanted you guys to sit with me and talk about yoga and what like applications it might have or how maya specifically works with yoga and her type one so let's start with introduction so maya since you're a type one guest for the day you can go first tell us all about yourself what you're doing where you're at and then your diagnosis story but also how you got into yoga Awesome. So um, my name is Maya Bremer. I was diagnosed in summer of 2009. I had just graduated from high school at the time I was working in the fashion industry. So I was super thin and super active. And I started losing a little bit of weight and it wasn't really a huge deal. I'm like, oh, my agent's going to be stoked. (laughs) But uh, I hadn't really made any lifestyle changes and, and the weight just kept pouring off me. And I'm a pretty tall person. And, um, by the time I was diagnosed at five, nine, I was weighed about a hundred pounds and I had wanted to go visit my boyfriend. And my mom told me that I could go after I went to the doctor and I walked into the doctor's office. My parents didn't even go in with me. I was 17 years old and they, told me the nurse told me I was type one before the doctor even walked in she's like oh you have type one diabetes and I felt pretty lucky in that I had grown up with one of my first ever boyfriends and my very best friend in high school both as type ones so I knew that I was going to be okay but it was still really you know terrifying shocking I mean I think we all especially people diagnosed more in their adult cognizant years. There's a lot of feels that go along with that. And so I was probably, I think my blood glucose levels were pretty low for diagnosis, only around in the like four or 500 range. But my A1C was all the way up at about 15, 16. So it had been a really long time, but through my like lifestyle and how active I was, I was keeping my blood glucose levels a little bit lower. So yeah, it was a pretty wild ride. And the craziest thing about it for me was that I was diagnosed in this kind of in-between time in my life. I had just graduated from high school. I'd moved to a new country. I grew up in India um, and then moved, just moved to the States for the first time really in my life. And so it was a really kind of crazy transition. But what that allowed me to do was to show up in this new place, show up in, you know, my first year of college as a person with type one. Nobody knew me any differently. I didn't have to reintroduce myself or teach people who already knew me, you know, what was going on. 
I could set up this whole new life all with my type one in mind. And I think that was like a absolutely huge gift in that moment, especially thinking about how for my type one friends, that transition from parent managed to self-management is so challenging. So I feel really lucky about that. Yeah, I would agree. Cause I actually, my story is a little similar to yours. I was in the middle of a move. My dad worked for the government. So we had to move every few years and we were moving from South Texas to Mexico city the same summer that I was diagnosed. So there was that sense of it not being as big of a deal because it wasn't that huge, huge of a change because everything else was changing around me. So it was harder to notice it. And it wasn't until like a few years later that till our next move, a couple years later, that the type one followed us. So that was like the only consistency that I had. And that's when I realized, oh, no, like this is going to be with me for a while. So that's interesting to hear that you had a similar interaction with it and that you were moving and you had a big, huge change. And I like your version of adjusting to it a little bit better than I did. I try to ignore it and make sure that people didn't realize that I had it, even though nobody would have known either way because I was a new kid in school. And so that's interesting that you started. So you, were you diagnosed in India or here in the States? I was diagnosed two weeks after I moved to the States. Okay. Because I know yeah. type 1 is viewed a little differently out there. So I was wondering if you had any experience with that. Not too much. I think, I mean, I have like anecdotal experience from you know, growing up with type ones close to me in my life. But I do know my parents actually still lived in India for a few years. I was the one who moved. They stayed in India. And the only thing of note that I'll share with you about being diabetic in India is that the cost of insulin is phenomenal. I, for a year's supply of insulin, was paying about as much as I would just pay in copays in the States or even less. I mean, I think it was like under $200 for a year's worth of insulin. Every year I would go visit my parents, pick up all my supplies and come back. And that was just magic. I mean, I, it was really cool. Yeah, I, I hear that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then how did you get into yoga once you're or after your type one? I'm assuming it sounds like type one came before or after that. Well, because I grew up in India, I was always exposed to yoga. My mom always, my whole life was a yogi and um, it was the kind of thing we did in PE. We would go and travel and, and go to ashrams and do all sorts of wonderful things, but yoga was just kind of always around. So I would say I kind of grew up with it. And I think my senior year in high school before diagnosis, I had this like plan that I was going to graduate and go down to Kerala and with one of my girlfriends and do my yoga teacher training then. So that was pre-type one. And then things happened and life happened and I never did my yoga teacher training. I came to the States. I took advantage of the yoga classes at my university. I, I did a little yoga here and there. I signed up for another yoga teacher training and that fell through. And it was always there, but never a huge part of my life. And about five years ago, um, I got a job with Lululemon and a whole, you know, company of yogis and, and everyone has their goals of being a yoga teacher. I mean, I think like in my store out of 30 employees, there was probably only three people who didn't have it written down that they wanted to go do their yoga teacher training in the next five years. 
Uh, so I was just kind of in good company of like having that rolling goal of one day being a yoga instructor. And I was lucky enough to get accepted into Lululemon's first internal employee yoga teacher training. And that's actually where I met Ash. We both attended that training, teacher training together. And it was just the absolutely most magical experience. We went down to California. Um, we were in uh, Monterey on the beach doing more hours of yoga that I thought was physically possible in a day. <laughs> Actually, even now, I don't think that that is physically possible, but somehow we survived. And yeah, we did, we did 22 days divided up over, over a few months of just really magical learning and practicing together. Uh, and I came out of that I didn't know if I wanted to be a teacher when I walked in. I mean, I thought I wanted to teach, but I didn't know what I was going to walk away with. And I came out of that with like a true passion for wanting to share yoga. And, and I think one of the things for me that, that I love about being a yoga teacher is that I am not your standard issue yogi. I, I'm not your you know, all peace and love all the time. I'm a snowmobiler. I'm a snow skier. I do a lot of extreme sports. You know, I, I don't live and breathe this uber Zen life, but yoga fuels me and helps me to do the things that I'm passionate about. It teaches me how to live my life off the mat. And I think I love being able to bring that to people, especially people who think that yoga is all about what happens when you're in the studio. Yeah, definitely. There is a lot of misconception around yoga, how it's softer than people realize it can be. And the benefits are very limited as opposed to what it's mm -hmm. really there for is to kind of supplement what you're doing. So yeah, that's really great. Now, Ash, tell me about mm -hmm. yourself. And then also where or how you met Maya so obviously in teacher training but then also how you met her type one so when do you, do you remember that moment where you realized that she had type one I do so to start my name is Ash Blues my pronouns are she her I'm located in Vancouver BC Canada um, I teach something called the philosophy which we will I'm sure get into and yeah, Maya and I met during our teacher training when I was pregnant. So I actually completed my teacher training when I was just shy of three months. And then we went back for a second module. I was about six months pregnant. So it was definitely experience, especially all that yoga. I mean, it definitely prepped me for childbirth. Um, and like Maya, I was like, yeah, maybe I'll teach. Maybe I won't. And then when I came out of it, I kind of fell into teaching. People just kept asking me to teach and I kept on saying yes. So I taught up until two weeks before I gave birth. And then I taught eight weeks postpartum. I started back up again, which was the most amazing thing because it really helped me deal with the internal stuff that comes along with having a baby. So the mental side of it and being able to do something for myself. So like Maya said, yoga isn't just about what happens on the mat. It's very much about the process of being off the mat and how it can support you in your day-to-day -day life or things that you didn't know that you'd be facing or dealing with. Um, yeah. And I remember very, very clearly, 
uh, we were in our teacher training. And what I love about Maya is that she is vocal and she will tell you exactly what is going on. And so Maya was very open and honest and candid with everyone in our teacher training. There was never a question as to like, ooh, what, what is diabetes? Like if you had a question about Maya's diabetes, she would tell you and she would want to educate you in a way that made you feel empowered. So I remember we were in our, we were sitting in the um, ashram or the, you know, our little space. And I think it, it beeped a couple of times, the device that Maya had. Is that right, Maya? Am I, am I mm-hmm. getting that right? Yeah. yeah. And, and I just remember like started asking questions. And this is one of my first experiences with someone I would say closer to me with diabetes. So it was kind of like, okay, what's going on? Like what needs to happen? And so Maya was just explaining like the glucose levels and like what was going on in her body. So that was really cool. And then obviously I started following Maya on Instagram. And what I absolutely loved was that, I mean, this was a conversation we had was about posting pictures in bikinis or swimsuits or Maya wakeboarding and not letting her type one get in the way of this. Um, So there's this online movement about not being afraid of showing your device in a swimsuit and to be proud of it. Um, So I thought that was really, really cool. And that opened my eyes to the possibilities of what can happen when you have type 1 diabetes and not to be restricted by it, by your physical activities and following the things that you absolutely love. Yeah, yeah, that is a big, that's a something that's, I guess, maybe as long as in, uh, social media has been around, especially the visual side of it, there's a, lo- a lot of people urging themselves and also others to feel okay with having their their devices on display or not even on display, just having them out and visible. Because that was something growing up, I was very resistant to pumps and anything that I had to wear because I didn't want people to see it because I didn't want people to know about my type one. So like, I was in that closet so to speak for a very long time because I just didn't want people to judge me for it and I didn't want people to think it poorly of me because of it because I think I grew up with a very different idea of what diabetes is or what diabetes was back then than I do now and it's something that I tried to hide very intentionally but it's now it's great to see those kinds of things and those kinds of people today on social media like Instagram just like being okay with it and making other people feel not as alone in their having to wear something so that was, I think that's great that Maya does that too. So Maya, going into your yoga training, was type one something that was like hot on your mind? Like, was it, some, I guess, how long, how long had you had it by the time you got to the training part? Um, I, I mean, I don't know exactly how long, probably I'd already been diabetic for six or seven years. I think for me, I wasn't super concerned with my teacher training aspect. I was more concerned about teaching. I think as a student, I've always been able to communicate my needs to let an an instructor know like, yeah, I'm going to have, you know, glucose tabs or dates or whatever it was that I'm going to eat at the top of my yoga mat. Like, whatever. I'm not worried about that. If I beep and I have to explain it, I'll explain it. But I think for me, the thing that was more of a battle was showing up and fitting what I believe the mold of a yoga teacher to be. You know, I thought a yoga teacher had to be this certain way and to show up and maybe beep or have devices on my body that 
are specifically linked to food. And especially in the yoga community, there's so much, there's just weird stuff about food. It's, it's just weird. And there's, there's so much of the like Ayurveda, drink your cinnamon tea, you know, like, oh, you can cure that. And I didn't want to, I wanted to show up in the right way um, around those conversations. Yeah, that was actually a question that I was going to get to. But since you brought it up, again, I guess, I don't know if it's a misconception, but yogis, t- yogis tend to be very naturopathic and natu- very like into like the natural remedies and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And cinnamon is a really big one that type ones hear about <sighs> constantly. So wait, now pause for yes. a non-type one. Why cinnamon? As a type one diabetic, I can tell you, I have no idea. <laughs> so, so that's actually a good point, Ash. So if we ever get into something like get very type one-y and start talking about things that you just don't get, like acronyms or like, you know, cures in this case, mm-hmm. um, you can call what I, I've been calling a type one timeout. So just like type one timeout, no matter what we're doing, and then we'll stop and then explain whatever it is that we're talking about. Maya and, Maya and I worked at Lulu for so long. We got the, we got the acronyms down, Pat. We know about the internal <laughs> language, so I will definitely be calling timeouts here and there. Yeah. Yeah, and, and Walt, you have to call a Lulu timeout. Like, if we say stuff that you don't understand, you, know you just call a Lulu so, timeout. I will call timeouts if, if anything comes up. <laughs> but something that is great because, like, people can – we can talk to each other and we know what we're saying, so we don't have to, like, explain anything to each other. But at the same time, for people on the outside that want to be a part of it and want to help us can sometimes feel left out because because of how into our you know our own condition that we can get so thank you for bringing that up and then you were also kind of signaling that you agreed with her talk of food in the yoga community so what do you what is your stance on that I have okay so first of all I think that the there I found even for myself being an able-bodied hetero white woman going into my teacher training, I already felt like I had a leg up because that Mm. is what society has deemed to be acceptable as a yoga instructor is that you have to be a skinny, tall, white, blonde woman and be able to do all these flexible things with your body in order to be successful. And I use air quotes here. And that's just not at all what we need more of in the yoga world. And what I've also found for myself is that just from my own experience and what I've seen is that a lot of people will mask harmful eating patterns with veganism or the yogic lifestyle. So I've seen a lot of incredibly skinny, unhealthily skinny women and instructors who use this as a way to mask eating disorders. And Mm -hmm. I think Ayurveda is absolutely fantastic. And I also think eating a burger is super awesome. And I think that listening to what you need to be eating is great. And I don't think we all need to have that air quotes yoga body because that's not real. And so I think we need more real people teaching yoga of different body types of different capabilities to show that yoga is accessible to everyone. And I think Maya just nailed it on the head with uh, just with all of it. It's there's we, we don't need any more of that feeding into the stereotype of what a yogi should look like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I thought about doing yoga instructor training for a while. And I think I got like into like the Q&A parts of it, but I never got so far as to think about like, like oh, what if my CGM goes off during like in the middle of a class? I, I never got further far enough into that. But walking into a class as like, you know, a student, 
or just someone practicing that that is something in the back of my head like a concern so like i'll try to be as far from the back as as far in the back as possible in case my my uh pdm goes off or my my pump goes off and there's a couple of times where like people won't notice it or they'll just be so into it that they don't you know hear it but sometimes at the end of a class like a teacher will say like could you please not have your cell phones out and like i feel like it's it may not have been directed at me, but it feels like it was because I had to have my phone out because that's where I see, can see my blood sugar number throughout the class. Mm-hmm. And then also like having candy, like I know sugar is like a big thing. So like people, and especially, I, I don't know, it's big everywhere, but avoiding sugar is a big thing. And I'm just sitting there with like, you know, a pile of Smarties or like a bag of like Sour Patch Kids. And I feel like I know why I have it there, but not everybody does. And I feel judged for it, or I feel like I could be judged for it. And it, and it is like an anxiety that I don't think everybody walking into a yoga class necessarily has. And maybe even instructors won't really realize is there too. So it's something that I kind of wanted to talk about here and maybe answer your questions, Ash, about that and see where we can kind of meet in the middle so that people with type one don't feel those kinds of anxieties walking in to the point where they actually avoid those things. So that, and yeah. I think that's kind of like the worst part of it is if you get, if you let your anxiety get so out of control that you just stop doing things that could actually benefit you. Like I think yoga could. I am. Um, I have one of my girlfriends who comes to my classes and she is type one. And I know for her, it was really hard at first to go to yoga classes until she developed a relationship with the teacher because yeah, your pump's going to go off and it's up to the teacher to make the space comfortable so that the person who's attending doesn't feel like they're an outsider because it, it is just what it is. And the nice thing is with uh, my friend Steph is that she'll talk to me about it or she'll explain the reasons why, but it'd be really cool if we could get to a place where type ones or people with devices don't even have to justify or explain why they have their phone out or why there's candy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How do you, how do you feel about that Maya? I think one of the tricky parts for me as an instructor is that I can see both sides of that because I do see the student who is like walks into the studio. They've got their phone in their hand. They're texting They're you know, they're not present. And I want to be able to call that student in while letting my other students feel welcome. And what I would say about that is the best thing you can do is tell your teacher, like you don't have to have like a heart to heart about it. But like, let your people know, if I know, I can support you. I think one of the most formative things that ever happened to me in this regard was uh, anyone who wears an Omnipod, which is the insulin pump that I wear, and it sounds like that's what you wear too, Walt. Um, Anyone who wears an Omnipod knows the expiration beep. It's like this like back-to-back kind of loud beat and you can't really time it you don't really know when it's coming you have to turn I know you have to turn it off with your remote which I don't normally carry into the studio with me and I was sitting in a class it was towards the beginning of class so we were right you know sitting down we just had you know set an intention we hadn't really started to practice yet and my my expiration alarm went off and my teacher who I loved and I've been practicing, practicing with her for years. She goes, what the hell is that sound? And I was so mortified. I ran out of the studio. I was like, Oh my God, I shouldn't even be in here. And at the end of class, 
Like I run back in, I'm like trying to practice. I'm all overwhelmed and upset that I ruined class for everyone. And at the end of class, I was like, you know, that noise was my insulin pump. And I'm really sorry that it disturbed you. And she goes, oh my God, if I had known, I wouldn't have said anything, right? I would have just let it go. And I had never, it was in my, you know, my form that I was diabetic, but I never said, hey, I have a pump on, it might be. And I think one of the coolest things that happened in, that has happened to me in the last few years is that I've actually developed quite a few type one students, a group of type one students who come to my class and specifically one, Debbie, if you're listening, I love you. Um, but <laughs> she wears the same pump and CGM as me. And it's so magical to walk through the space and see her Dexcom on her arm, see her Omnipod, hear that little beep. Um, but what I've learned from Debbie and my other type one students is that I normally can't hear their devices. Um, I, you know, she'll walk out of class and be like, oh my God, did you hear my pump beep? And I was like, no, I didn't hear it, you know? And um, I even had my pod fail uh, towards the end of class a couple months ago, which makes this like never ending high pitched screech. So I had my <laughs> pod fail. I like put my hand on it, walked out, ripped it off. I had like five minutes left in class, so I wasn't going to monkey with it. I just ripped it off and set it outside the door of the studio and walked back in, you know, OK, we'll switch sides to the other, you know, <laughs> and finish the class. And at the end of class, I was like, you guys, I'm so sorry um, that my insulin pump made all that noise, you know, at the end of class. And no one even noticed. If I had not said anything, people would have been like, oh, yeah, I did hear like a beeping noise, but I figured it was the HVAC system. You know, no one would have ever thought anything of it. And I think if you set up your instructor to be prepared that that might happen, then they're not going to bring attention to it. They're not going to single you out. But in that moment, you know, as a teacher, you hear something weird or something is awry or someone's like wrestling with a candy wrapper, you know, even though we want that to be okay, I want to believe that that is the thing that you need to do. If you let me know in advance, I can support you, right? I can mm -hmm. support you by letting, giving you the space to do whatever it is that you need to do. And for anyone who likes coconut water, I will tell you it's the best low treatment in a yoga class. It is. It's like, you know, about 30 carbs for a full thing of coconut water. It doesn't get super nasty when it gets warm. Um, and no one will ever say anything about you having a coconut water at the top of your mat. <laughs> but funny. if you want Sour Patch Kid, I won't say anything about that either. Yeah, I don't I don't like coconut water, so that's my thing with it. But yeah, and I I could very well like pick snacks that aren't like Smarties are very loud, like that crinkly wrapper that they come in. Like I and I notice it. I always remember right when I'm in class because that's when I'm using it. But yeah, so I could definitely be more strategic in that respect. But Ash, for context, the when a or an Omnipod fails, it sounds like a flat line. So like when you're in the hospital, yep. or you've heard it probably by now. Yeah, I've had I've had um, I I think like the best thing that has ever happened is like not drawing attention to it. And mm -hmm. if someone has to run out of the room and then come back in, not to be like, are you okay? But just to let them be. It's the same thing like when someone has, um, you know, when you're you're stifling a cough and it only makes it worse and you're trying mm -hmm. so hard and you're like <laughs> and you feel like you're about to die so you have to run out the room 
the best thing that like a teacher could do is to actually ignore it because then you're like, just let me get back to normal, pretend like nothing happened. And I think that's the best thing to do because I've, I've heard that noise before and it's just kind of like, don't draw attention to it. Just mm-hmm. let it be. It's, it's a part of life and we don't need to single it out and to make it a big deal as instructors. Yep. Yeah, there was, I had a experience once. It was like a pretty full class. It was early in the morning. So it was like, there are a lot of people there. And I was, I, for some, whatever reason, I sat right in the middle of the class because that's where I wanted to sit that day. And that's when I had this like series of low alarms from my CGM. And it just kept on constantly going because I couldn't get to my phone to like tap on the safety to like turn it off for 30 minutes. And I just felt, and I, it always sounds louder to the, to you than it does to everybody else. But this was going on kind of incessantly. But I had known the teacher for for years, like even before she had become an instructor. So like she knew what was going on. And I think she didn't really say anything. And it took me a while to like get the urge to get up and actually leave the class just because I was just so set on like powering through. But then eventually I saw that I was like at 50 and couldn't do that. So I, I left. And so I think it was more my stubbornness than anything else that made it worse. And I think there is a degree of people like me that are just like refuse to let it get in the way but at the same time like you're resisting something that has to be taken care of in that case it was a low that i had to like walk out of the classroom sit in like the lobby for 10 minutes and start eating my smarties and you know eventually i got up and had i done that earlier like the first time the thing went off it would have been it would have taken a lot less time and i would have been a lot less anxious i think but like i like that idea of going to the teacher but going to the teacher before class and just letting them giving the heads up because it is it is kind of unfair for someone like me to expect them to be okay with these weird noises if they don't know what they are and again like you were saying Maya people do walk in not really there not really present they're like you know on their social media like you know texting or like you know snapchatting as like during class so like I get why they don't want that to happen but there there is a middle ground that we need to meet each other at and I think that is a great place to start is making it known that instructors are people that you can go to with those things and letting them know that you can tell them about like your devices or the noises that you might make during classes. And I think that would help a lot. I think like another example is that I have a lot of doctors who come to my classes and a lot of times they're on call. So, you know, when a doctor comes up to me and says, Hey, I'm on call. I have to have my phone. I'll keep it under my mat. Um, so that if it buzzes that I get called, I'll have to hop out of the class. I would never say anything to them. Oh, no, sorry, you can't come in. You know, I want them to be included. And all it takes is is being that person, being willing to be the person who will stand up and say, this is what I need is I I have never been met with anything but positive response to that. Right. Standing up for what you need to to be in a space and be included is it doesn't have to be a big conversation. It's not a huge deal. And you're educating somebody who then the next time they see your pump or they see somebody on their phone or they hear that noise, they're like, oh, wow, I have another type one in my class. You know, I think, you know, to give people that context, that's a gift that you can give uh, instructors. That's a gift that you can give fellow yoga students. And, And I think if you put it into that context, it can become a little bit less scary. It's not about me opening up about myself and, and if you feel, you know, if disability is a word or differently abled or however you want to describe yourself, the constraints that are placed on you and your yoga practice, they're real and they deserve to be recognized. And there might be somebody who doesn't have the ability to communicate that. 
So by you standing up and, and explaining that to your instructor, you're giving the person who doesn't have that ability, um, doesn't have that confidence, the space to, to be there too. Uh, I think that's, that's the big thing for me. And then talking about like getting up and getting out of the space earlier, I think this is the biggest yoga lesson, right? It's, it's something you learn in a million ways in yoga of like the yogi hundred percent versus the like football player hundred percent. You know, I'm showing up my hundred percent is going to look different day to day, right? We all know if you're trying to do, you know, half moon pose and balance on one foot on Tuesday, maybe you just fly into the pose and you're super stable. And on Wednesday, maybe you don't have the balance to do the same pose that you could do just the day before. You have to show up and meet yourself where you are in that day. And if that means you have to put a little bit more effort into your diabetes care on the mat on that day, that's totally okay. That's what you have to give. That's what you have in that moment. You don't have to give more than that. It doesn't make you your yoga practice less valuable. I think it took me a long time to, to not feel like I had wasted a yoga class because I was low and couldn't participate in every minute of it. Yeah, I've definitely been in those situations where I've like dosed too much beforehand and didn't expect to go low as quickly as I did. And just kind of felt like, like you said, kind of like, I just wasted my time here. Like, why did I come here? And just wasted like the instructor's time and everybody else's time and like wasted the space because like, you know, classes fill up. And I think there is a degree of that we beat ourselves up for things that we just don't really have a whole lot of control over is type one being one of them. And I think, which is ironic because yoga is one of those things where, you know, you have to, it, yoga meets you where you are and like you have to work through it and it's a practice. Like you're not going to be 100% every day and you're not going to be great at it every time you do it. It's about learning how to work through the motions. So I think, yeah, type one and yoga really mesh well together, mm-hmm. especially if you're okay with being uncomfortable, which is what I think yoga is all about. All right. So let's start getting into Ash's questions. Mm-hmm. So what's your first one, Ash? I feel like we've kind of tied and touched on all of them a little bit, but Maya, this one is specific to you as an instructor, because when you hear, you know, your alarm going off or that you're running low, how do you still hold space for the room while taking care of yourself? So I think as a a new instructor, you walk in as a teacher thinking that you have to fill every moment. And what I've learned over the years is that I can let students sit in a pose without a million cues, right? Like I, no one needs, you don't need constant flow of conversation from me. And so for me, it's about giving myself the space before class to know that I'm set up, you know, I've done what I can to be present for my blood glucose to be stable as stable as it can be. And, you know, it doesn't always work out. This year is the first time I've ever had, I've actually had a couple pretty significant low blood glucose events in class. And I was always so nervous about it. And it really wasn't that bad, right? My Dexcom alarmed my uh, continuous glucose monitor that I wear that tells me what my blood sugar is. I wear an Apple watch. So it, it buzzed on my wrist. I, you know, walked up, chugged my coconut water while people were on their left side, you know, pause. Okay. We'll switch to the other side or move on to the next pose or finish our flow. 
you know, a couple minutes later, there's another break. I look back and see how things are going. And, and the reality is, is that it is more work. I do have more going on when I'm teaching a class because I am constantly checking in to see how my blood glucose levels are. And it's totally fine. Like, I know that I'm here for my students. I know that in that moment of me treating a low or even delivering insulin or, you know, glancing at my watch to make sure that that I'm okay. I'm doing that so that I can show up for my students. It is mm. the same thing. Uh, and it took me a while to feel confident in that. Uh, but I know, I know that that's true. And I think, you know, I'm curious, like, what would happen if you were to ignore it? Like, would you pass out? Would you like, I've almost passed out in class, and I don't have type one, like multiple times, I've nearly mm-hmm. passed out. And so I'm like, what would happen for someone who actually like has a condition? <laughs> yeah, so you could pass out. I think the big thing is my number one cue that my blood glucose is starting to trend low while I'm teaching is way before my alerts or alarms are going to go off. And it's when I start to mix up my lefts and rights. So I'll start to mix up my cueing and I'm not speaking really clearly to my students. And that's normally my indicator, like go look at your watch and make sure that you're okay. And so uh, to me, the worst thing that happens if I were to be low would be that I'd have to stop teaching because I'd be too low to continue to, to, I mean, it's obviously not, not the worst case scenario for a low, but I think in the context of teaching, you know, it's, it's about being proactive so that you can continue to teach through the class. I'm really lucky in that I maintain a lot of functionality at low blood glucose levels. I don't, you know, I don't get super woozy. I don't need to stop doing everything. As long as I, you know, get a little bit of glucose on board, I'm normally fine. But it it can impact my clarity and my voice as a teacher. The sound of my voice changes, like little things like my balance, um, my spatial awareness are impacted. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Low blood sugars can basically affect cognitive ability. So like people without type one typically see cognitive impairment um, at 70 glucose, but like sounds like Maya, you can get lower than that and still be relatively okay. Like I can too. I can still be kind of with Mm -hmm. it mentally, but like, I'm still like tired. Um, my eyelids get really heavy. Like there's a lot of different symptoms that people feel, but eventually like the worst case scenario is that you pass out and have a seizure basically. But there are a lot of warning signs that come before that for most people. Um, and, and that's what those alarms are for too. That's why they're so annoying because they try to avoid you getting to that point. But yeah, but in terms of, mm-hmm. yeah. So in, uh, it can be, it can get pretty bad, but like Maya said, people learn the the tells before, like it can get, it gets so bad that you can't do anything about it. Cool. Thank you. I did have another question. And so I teach something called the philosophy, which is a combination mm-hmm. of restorative yoga and massage. So it is very, very gentle. It is designed to give people the space to go inwards and to get into touch with their body. And so in this practice, um, it's not a lot of vigorous activity. And Maya, I know that you teach a whole bunch of different classes. You use like the steel mace, you do um, rolling, you do all types of things. Mm -hmm. So how have you had to 
maybe modify practices or how have you structured your classes to make it more accessible if need be for type one? So I think the biggest thing that I incorporate is the use of props. So in any class, I'm always encouraging people to grab as many props as they need. I always have a blanket or a towel if the class is heated um, with me to lay under my pump or my CGM if it's on the ground, because it can be really irritating if you've got like a lot of pressure right where you have you're injecting insulin or you have your sensor. For people on traditional insulin pumps, Walton, my pump is a little bit bulkier because it doesn't have any tubing. People with traditional pumps can normally move their pump around a little bit so they don't have to lay on it in the same way. But still, I found even when I was on a tubed pump, I really liked having the ability to like add and give myself a little bit of, of extra squish wherever I need to. So that is one element that I think is super important. And whether or not you have type one, whatever is going on with your body, giving yourself the freedom to like, if an instructor didn't tell you to grab a block, grab the block. Like it's not a big deal. You can use it. Maybe you have your own that you bring to class. I know I bring an extra towel to class so that I can pad underneath my devices if I need to. And that's really super helpful. I also think we understand with our own bodies how close you can get to a pump, you know, if you're doing self-myofascial release and using, you know, foam rollers and and I use rad rollers as the brand that I use, but all the little different kinds of tools that help us, you know, release t- tight muscles. We know how close we can get and it's really hard for somebody else to be able to tell, you know, like ooh, do I need to give this a wide berth or or can I go really close and and so just trusting yourself, you know what feels good, what doesn't feel good and and if you're concerned you can modify, right? Like if, if something doesn't feel right, like at the end of the day, your instincts are correct. And sometimes for me, that means if I'm taking a class and I have my insulin pump in a place that doesn't allow me to do something on one side of my body, I'm not going to do it at all. I'm going to do an entirely different pose. I always make my classes accessible to myself. I don't teach anything that I can't practice but the, my pumps and sights move around my whole body, right? So some days, you know, I can't do something on the top of my thigh, but then the next day my pump's on my back, so I can't really roll out my back. So, you know, being flexible and, and gentle with yourself if you need to change the way that a class looks is so important. Well, very cool. I think that's something I can take away as an instructor and someone without diabetes, um, especially with a restorative practice, is offering those modifications. And and for me, now I have an understanding of why that extra cushioning underneath would be so important. Mm-hmm. So thank you. Yeah. And Ash, in your practice uh, of massage and yoga, have you ever had someone in your in one of those classes with a device or not even type one devices, but any device? And then how did you work around that? Or did you work around that? Or like, how did that work out? Yeah, I've had it a few instances with people with devices. And I I think it kind of goes the same thing with pregnancy is providing all the modifications possible. And 
providing modifications so you're not singling someone out. So Mm -hmm. for me, it's like, instead of queuing like, okay, all my mamas who are pregnant, like that's going to single people out for maybe they don't want someone else to know that they're pregnant. Or maybe they're not in a place where they want to be identifying as pregnant at this part in their journey. And I think the same goes for people who have diabetes. You you don't single them out because of it. You could say, queuing like, if you would like, maybe today you choose to lie on your side instead of your stomach. Maybe play around with mm-hmm. um, drawing your knee a little bit less close into your stomach. Maybe you actually play around with it being further away so other individuals can have this as well. And I think it's about creating connection and relationship with your students. Like we've talked about pumps and alarms going off and with a very restorative practice, it's generally quieter. There's not a lot going on. So a lot of people feel like their devices are going to be louder. And mm-hmm. that's not necessarily the case. People are so in their own body and in their own space that they barely notice. And if they notice and they're annoyed by that, then there's something wrong with them. <laughs> And then they need to just check their ego because this is like a communal space for everyone as well. Yeah, that's their yoga work that needs to be done, not the person mm-hmm. whose device is beeping's yoga work, right? Like, Yeah. It always seems like it is way louder than it probably actually is. Just because like you said, like the classes are always super quiet and everybody's kind of like, you know, falling asleep essentially almost. And again, it's kind of one of those mm-hmm. things where people are they're not worried about you. They're not thinking about the person over there in the middle of the class, like, you know, with the weird beeps and boops. They have their own things. They're, they're at the class to do something specific, and it's not to listen for, you know, weird sounds and make comments about them if they were to go off. And again, it's I think it's uh, an anxiety that type 1s just kind of, like, have all the time just because it's something that they deal with. You know, mm-hmm. those alarms go off at random times, like at work. It happens to me all the time, too. And there's people that will say, like, what the hell's that? And it does feel kind of weird and annoying to because you can't control it. There's no you can't stop those things from happening because they're they're essentially there to keep you alive. And so it's it it can get to that point where it's just it's aggravating to be in those situations where it could go off and you don't know what to do about it. Yeah. And like everyone everyone needs some form of yoga. We're all making our way onto our mat for different reasons. And something like type one or the sounds of your devices that are keeping you alive should not be something that stops you from making it onto your mat and making it to a group setting. So as an instructor and someone without type one, I can just encourage you to keep going to classes, keep showing up, keep doing what you need to do for yourself. And explain to your instructor, and if they get it, they get it, and if they don't, well, then they're a shitty human being. Just kidding, but kind of true. Kind of kidding. Kind of serious, but not yet. No, and then also, there's a lot of, I guess nowadays, it's probably the greatest time to be able to shop for a yoga instructor, too, because like, there's just so many, at least where I live, I live between three different yoga studios, and so like, and they all have like five or six uh instructors each so it's really easy to find people that you're comfortable with like you can go to a couple classes if you feel like there's someone that you can tell about your devices or like say give like a heads up like oh this might happen sometime like there there are people that will not make a big deal out of it and more people than you'd probably think and who knows maybe you show up to a class and your instructor is type one we have two type one instructors at one of the studios that i teach at if you didn't say oh hey i'm type one you would never learn that about your instructor. You know, one of them, she doesn't wear a CGM. She takes shots. Like you would never be able to see it's an invisible disease. So, you know, being open and communicating with people, that's how you create relationships. Right. And even if they're not type one, 
you know, having somebody be able to say, oh my gosh, my kid was just diagnosed. Can I talk to you about this? Right. It's really, really powerful. It's one of the reasons why I wear my devices so that people can see them. So they know they can come talk to me, but I think, yeah, like go out there. I mean, so many people are impacted by type one in some way or another, you would be shocked at how many people even in that space are, have something in common with you. Mm-hmm. And and Walt, kind of like what you said, now's the perfect time being as it seems like there's a yoga instructor on every corner. That sounds wrong, but you know what I mean. Um, we get it, yeah. <laughs> but now is also, you get it. Now is also the most amazing time because we are in quarantine. Go find online classes, go find people who you would maybe not necessarily take to their class. Maybe you would never go to the studio, maybe it's in a different city. Now is a time to explore in the comfort of your own home to allow yourself to be in your body and not because of your diabetes, but to actually be in your body because you can be in touch with it without many distractions. Yeah, definitely. There are a lot of like, especially in my area, there are a lot of studios that are doing like free classes online. And that's a great place if you haven't done yoga ever and you're interested in it, but you were kind of concerned about going to a class and being the person in the back beeping all the time. This is a great place to do that now because you can just mute yourself or mute your computer. So that way you can be in the class and not have to worry about your type one interrupting people, even though it probably wouldn't have otherwise. Oh my and God. You know, oh, go ahead, I was going to say, or like also for me, taking these classes are great because you could just let a fart out and nobody knows. <laughs> so true. <laughs> Unless you forgot to mute. <laughs> or if or your instructor. <laughs> <laughs> Happened to me two weeks ago. <laughs> But I also, I want to say something though, because it's come up a couple of times, um, this idea of being in the back and it's not important. Do not go to the back. If you are, well, one thing that I teach in my class, uh, it was part of our, our sequence that we learned in our teacher training. And I actually continue to incorporate it in my teaching is switching the front and the back of the room throughout class. And one of the reasons that I do this very intentionally is so that the person who thinks that they're sitting in the back of the class so that they're not going to be noticed understands that the class is A, not about them, and B, they are participant no matter where they are in the room. It doesn't matter if you're standing right up at the front next to where I am at the beginning of class. I'm walking all throughout the studio, right? Being in the back of the room is not protection from yourself. You know, I think that's the only reason that for the most part that I see people, you know, hiding back there is to try and isolate themselves from what's going on in the space. And the reality is, is that if you're in the middle of the room, nobody's going to hear your beeps more than if you're in the back of the room and you can be wherever you want to be in the space set up where you feel comfortable where you want to be don't put yourself in the corner to not inconvenience the class yeah mm-hmm. definitely i totally agree with that and again it's it, this this is a mentality that i had for i i say it more as a joke now but i, I, would, I would always say it's like i win every class because i'm just so good at all the poses and yoga isn't yoga isn't about that like I always say it's like my teacher doesn't tell me I win but like I know I win every class just because I'm so good at it but and I think 
it's a tough thing for at least maybe in the States. I don't know if anywhere else, but like it's a hard thing for being in a class that doesn't have that kind of goal of being better than everybody else. It's not so much. Yo- and I've mm-hmm. learned over the years that yoga isn't about being better than the person next to you. It's better. It's about being better than the person that you see in the mirror that morning. So it's about like getting improving yourself or improving what you were able to do yesterday and just kind of trying to get better as opposed to being better than somebody else. Mm-hmm. Maya, you, you mentioned that you had a lot of type ones in your classes. Um, did you find that they started going to your class because of you or how did that kind of come about? Was it just like a natural thing that people just started showing up and they all had Omnipods on or what was that like? I think it was natural. I think, um, but I think what happened was that uh, once they realized that I was type one, once they experienced being in the class with me, I think it became a community. And so, you know, I have specific classes that people try not to miss because um, they know, you know, I'm going to be there. I teach it always. I never get the class subbed. You know, I'm always going to be there. And, and I always leave an extra 30 minutes at the end of class to hang out and chat and, and talk about life and talk about what, you know, what's working, what's not working. And, and so I think it just is something that grew on its own. I have tried multiple times in multiple different ways to in like create an environment like this, but it never happens. And, and it just had to happen organically. Yeah, there is a there is something to be said about being in a group of people that have those like that you can see their devices and that understand things or understand the noises that are going on without you having to explain it. There was I did a bike ride with an entire team of type ones. We biked across the US and that was it was a feeling like you kind of mentioned earlier. It was just nice to know that you didn't have to explain it to people in the group because they just automatically got it. And it's Mm -hmm. It's something that I think type ones don't realize that they need or want until they're like in it, in the middle of it. And it's great to find that, like, you can find those kinds of things just naturally, like, you know, at a, at a yoga class when, when you're, you know, your teacher has type one. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's important to find community and, and camaraderie, no matter who you are, no matter what you're experiencing in your life. And if you show up to a yoga class, you already have that one thing in common. And when you add that next level, you know, I think it is, it's just really powerful. It's really helpful. And I think, you know, the type one yogis that I've come in contact with, they've really helped me because we do have that instant camaraderie, like whether or not we know each other well, you know, you immediately have something else in common. Ash, have you, uh, so in philosophy, could you go over, you mentioned it a little bit, could you kind of get into that, like what it entails, because that's actually how I learned about you and reached out to you, because philosophy is like yoga and massage, but like put together, and it's, it sounds like a really great program, so like, could you talk about that a little bit more? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So I was on, the way we connected was through the Self-Helpless podcast, and I was on discussing the importance of touch. And what a time to be alive and talking about touch, let me tell you. So I am the main instructor for the West Coast for philosophy. And philosophy originated because 
I don't, I don't know about you, but you know, when you go to yoga class and it's like the final few moments in Shavasana and you hear the teacher come over and they give you like a scalp massage or they gently press on your shoulders. And it's that, that release of being, I mean, I've said this so much, but in your body, but also having a supportive touch where there is nothing that is being asked of you. There is nothing that you need to do. There's no way to, no need to show your appreciation for this comforting touch. And so Ash Broder, who started Philosophy, who now lives in Toronto, what she found was when she offered this, students just wanted more and wanted more and more and more. And what she found was that as a society, we are dealing with skin starvation, that we are not receiving enough supportive touch. Because when you receive a lot of touch, it's charged. It can be sexualized. It it could be consensual and non-consensual. So when people come to a philosophy class, they know they're going to receive consensual, supportive touch. I also don't use the word safe because who am I to deem a space to be safe or what touch is safe, but supportive. And it doesn't matter if you're in a relationship, if you're single, if you have kids or not, we all need more touch in our lives. It creates a deeper connection to ourselves and a sense of community. I'm in no way, shape or form trained as an RMT, but I've always been told that I have hands like I worked on a farm my whole life. So I've got a really good sense of touch. And so people come to this restorative practice and about every third or fourth pose, they receive this touch. So it might be in child's pose, a massage on their low back. It could be a shoulder stretch. It could be a really good scalp massage. It could be down the quads or hamstrings even feet and hands. Touch is not accessible to us. Touch is also very expensive. How much is, I don't know how much a massage is in the States, but here in Canada, it runs at a hundred bucks a pop. And you can't, unless you have really good medical, you can't go for a massage every week. It's just not going to happen. And if you're not in a relationship, where else do you receive this touch where nothing is being asked of you? So for us, we want to offer this in a space for everyone. And that we need more touch in our lives. And hopefully this also gets people thinking about where do they receive touch and where do they not receive touch in their lives. Yeah. And that's, I heard about that and it sounded great because I do like, I do enjoy that section at the end of classes where like you kind of get that, I guess that extra squeeze at the end um, from some of my instructors and it's nice, but again, it's like, it's just that last two to three seconds and she has to do it to every person that wants it, which is usually about like 10 to 20 depending on the class size. And so it's very limited, but it's also like, it's really, it feels better than you think it would. And so I was wondering about that and how, if at all, um, people with devices have been in your classes or if there's like some sort of protocol for people that have things that are clearly on their bodies and you're not really aware of how to interact with them. And if they haven't really made you aware of them because they just either didn't want to, or just didn't really think about it. Um, I've, I've definitely had it happen where they didn't make me aware of it. But I find the areas in which I'm touching the body tend to be fairly safe. Like Maya, I know you had yours like on your upper outer thigh before. Mm-hmm. I definitely like I sometimes will touch that space, but like for Maya, remember in our teacher training, you could see the outline of the device on her legs. So I knew not to touch that area. Um, I've had people where they are recovering from surgery and they come to class. So I know that their legs are gonna be off limits. Um, you can see a difference between one side and the other. Um, I've also had people with hearing aids and then that gets really tricky where I go to give them a scalp massage and then I have to be really in the moment present and aware of what I'm doing. I can't just be thinking about Real Housewives of Beverly Hills, 
I have to be here in the moment because I need to be aware of what I'm touching and how those people are reacting. So I find where locations of devices are, aren't generally areas that I touch. I don't think most people like a stomach massage. So I, I don't touch that area. And I'm also aware, like I watch if they're flinching, I watch what's happening with their hands. I look if they're face up, I look at what's going on in their faces so that I can be in tune with what's going on. And either, you know, I can tell they're enjoying it. I stay there, I keep massaging that area. Or if I can tell something's off, I back off. Um, So people who've told me about their devices, great, it's perfect. I can still go around and touch them. I still give them the same amount of attention and care as I do with people without devices because nothing's worse than like, you hear a teacher coming, you hear them touch somebody else and you get skipped. That's like the worst feeling in the entire world. And you're like, am I a wrong, like, am I a bad person? What did I do? So I think it's really important that no matter what's going on with someone, that you spend equal time with each individual. Yeah, there, you mentioned it earlier about being pregnant and there's a weird kind of connection between touch and being pregnant. You know, I can't really speak to that, but a lot of the people that I've had on, on the show have said that people will go up to them like in public and will touch their devices like to see what they are and it reminded me of like the whole pregnancy thing like people just feel feel like they are entitled to be able to touch like a woman's stomach when they're pregnant but I don't know Maya have you ever had that situation where people have like for me it's more so like they they notice it and feel like they can talk to me about it like they can actively like ask me like really what I feel to be personal kind of like weird questions like in a very place where I don't want to be talking to them about that so it feels invasive to me in that respect but I don't know if you've ever been touched on your on your devices or like people have like made like bigger deals out of them than you probably wanted them to I've had some definitely like some TSA things where they're like really grabby with you know going through airport security and things like that but uh not too much I mean I I guess I am of a kind of I want people to ask I want people to talk to me about this stuff so I think I don't really mind too much. I definitely have had people ask me if it was like a, if my Omnipod was a house arrest monitor, I had (laughs) someone ask me if it was like, if I was like super addicted to cigarettes and it was like a a high octane nicotine patch. patch. I'm like, man, how many, how many packs a day would I be smoking if I needed that much uh, nicotine? But I think, you know, I have people say uneducated things to me. But I don't take it personally. I don't expect everyone to understand. And, you know, I think about like the baseline level of people's health education is so low. People do not understand their perfectly functioning bodies. So I can't expect them to understand or be empathetic towards my non-functioning body or differently functioning body, I guess. It still works pretty good. Actually, it's it's crazy right now. I am pregnant and I am in the stage of pregnancy where my body's making its own insulin. And it is the weirdest thing in the world. And it's not very good at it. And I'm like, well, I would rather you make no insulin than this kind of like shoddy, weird level of insulin production. <laughs> like all or nothing, please. This in-between thing is weirding me out. But But I do think people say strange things people you know i i get that thing all the time where people are like oh you're low do you need a cucumber or like do you need like what their understanding of what is actually going on in my body is so off it's why i try and use the term blood glucose instead of blood sugar to help distinguish 
give people like a differentiation between food and, you know, physiology. Because when you talk about sugar, then people are like, oh, you blood sugar, you can't have sugar. But if you talk about it in a little bit more medical terminology, I think people start to understand a little bit better. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I definitely experience it. I don't take it personally. But I also grew up as a little, you know, toe-headed blonde kid in a different culture. So I'm used to people asking me weird questions. And, you know, like when I was little, people would run up to me and touch my hair without my permission. So the idea of that happening to me now as an adult is much less jarring, I think, than it would be otherwise if I grew up in a world where there was a little bit less of that. Yeah. I can I can see that I didn't think about growing up in a culture where you look very different than everybody else. So like naturally just you being there, even if your pancreas fully works or not, you're gonna be people are gonna be asking you questions. But yeah, one one time I was like I was at a I was in line waiting to pay for something and a lady saw my pod on my arm and she said, Oh, what's that for? It's like, Oh, nothing, you know, don't worry about it. Um she was like, Oh, is it bad? And she just kept on assuming the worst. Like, I wasn't giving her very much information, but she just kept on assuming the worst. And it's like, no, it's just, you know, just something I have to deal with. And it's like, oh, okay, well, I'll pray for you no matter what it is. And it's just like, okay, lady, like, clearly I don't want to talk about this. Like, you can stop asking. And I always, and she was an older lady, so I felt bad for, like, not wanting to engage with her. But, like, sometimes, and for me, I think, or for people without type 1, it's hard to conceptualize the idea of having to do that all the time. So, like, it gets exhausting, mm-hmm. like, having to explain yourself or having to explain it to people that aren't really listening. They're just kind of being nosy. But, again, it's like the, we have to meet each other in the middle. Like, you know, I, I'm trying to be better at explaining what things are so that they can, like, actually maybe learn something or, like, you know, maybe interact with a type 1 later down in life and tell them, like, give them some sort of information or, like, some sort of insight. But, yeah, it is definitely difficult. And it's, like, it's a mindset for sure. Like, being able to engage with people that don't understand what you're going to be talking to or telling them about and explaining Mm -hmm. things that, like, they just have no context for. So, like, people, very few people know what insulin is and that they actually make it, like, you know, every day of their lives. Mm -hmm. I I think it is a relatable concept. And one of my friends wrote a book called where you like ancestries where are you really from and I think that same goes for anyone who doesn't necessarily look air quotes um, like they're from whatever country they live in getting asked oh but where are you from and it's those unsolicited questions with I mean in this case undertones of racism of of asking without it there being that connection or that relationship ahead of time. Mm-hmm. So if people don't have a relationship to you, Walt or Maya, and they start asking about this, it's like, well, where is this coming from? Why are you asking this? It's not because you actually care about me and you want to know deeper about me. This is your own inquiry into something that's going to serve them and not necessarily serve you too. So I think, mm-hmm. it, I think it is incredibly relatable to a lot of people because it's that unsolicited questioning about you about what's wrong with you about why are you here about these type of things that's absolutely nobody's business yeah and I think one of the interesting components to diabetes is that when it is visible when you can see it from afar that's my choice I'm choosing to make it visible whether you know it was prescribed by a doctor whether it was recommended I mean if I were to go, if I were to be able to do anything, I would get every type one on a CGM, right? Like if you wanted it, I would say, do it. It's the best. It's the best. But at the end of the day, you get to choose 
how much people can see. And even if you are wearing devices, like putting them under your clothes, hiding them from people, you know, you can do that. And so when I wear my pump on my arm, I'm doing that knowing that I'm going to get unsolicited comments, knowing that people can see it and, and see something that is otherwise invisible. You know, that's a choice that I make. Whether or not it's the best medical choice is becomes irrelevant because that has nothing to do with the way people comment, the way people perceive it. Yeah, I actually mm-hmm. went on the Omnipod specifically so I could hide it because I felt like that was easier to deal with than having like all these pens and pen caps and all this, st- all this stuff. But again, we do have some degree of choice, at least in the States, it's a little bit murky depending on how you're insured. But you do have a choice whether to uh, use pumps or pens or syringes and mm-hmm. you can place your pump strategically so that they aren't visible or you can and i think there's a big movement now to like make them visible so that people can see them and i've had i've had some like you know annoying conversations but i've also had some really great ones with like type ones that were like very little and their parents like saw it and they like you know related to me in some way and i gave them some like insight onto onto like people to follow like for their kid who happened to be into dance um and stuff like mm-hmm. that and yeah it is a choice that you to make yourself visible and that part of you specifically visible. And there's a, there's good, there's good to that too. There's definitely a way to um, help people do that without being a very passive way of doing it. And I think like yesterday, the neighbor walked by and he has a type one kid who's really resistant to wearing a CGM. And he's like, look, she's wearing her CGM on her arm. Like, look at that. That's so cool. You don't have to put it in your belly, you know? And I think like, those that one comment is worth all the struggle for me that one you know potential kid who's willing to put his cgm on his arm or or uh, you know person who then becomes less self-conscious uh or you know my ability to give people enough information to then not judge the next person they run into Um, you know, I think about like all the, of all the TSA agents who have seen my insulin pump for the first time, the next time they see it, it no longer is a conversation. So that Mm -hmm. I, you know, that's why I do it. That's why I share it because I have the confidence and I have the sense of self that allows me to not feel persecuted or attacked in those circumstances. So I think it's my job to to do that. And it's so that the person who can't, so that the person who isn't in that place, then maybe doesn't have to. Mm -hmm. Here, here. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) This is a question for both of you. Have you, so Ash said that you had type one people come to practice with you and also Maya, she has a bunch of them. Is there anything that you think yoga could particularly help people with type one deal with? There's like, is there anything like, is there something about yoga that's particularly helpful for type ones that you've noticed or like Maya for you specifically, since you've, you've been doing yoga for so long, is there anything about yoga that you found in type one or in managing your type one that's helped make it a little bit easier or like maybe seen it, look at it a little differently? I think it's to me predominantly in mindset. I think it's, predominantly, I mean, anyone with type one knows what stress does to your blood glucose levels. If, if yoga can give you an out, an ability to release a little bit of stress in your life, um, 
or a tool to help manage, uh, you know, increase cortisol levels, right? I think it, it has to be good. But I also think we live in this go, go, go world, having time to slow down. And like, even if all I have to think about is me moving on my mat and, and my blood glucose, great. That's a million less things than I'm thinking about out in the rest of the world, right? I can start to turn off a lot of the, the noise and get present with my body. And, and one of the things that I think is so wonderful about yoga is that it teaches you how to be in your own physical body. And as type ones, it's something we ask ourselves all the time. How am I feeling? Am I feeling low? Am I feeling high? Oh, I'm thirsty. Does that mean my blood sugar is not good? Oh, I have to pee. It was my blood glucose elevated for too long. You know, we're always asking ourselves questions, asking why we feel a certain way, asking what the impact of that feeling is. And if we can take that away from being all medical and clinical and into, you know, the experience of being a human being, you know, why I teach yoga is to give people greater literacy of their own bodies. And that's something that anyone can learn coming into practice, whatever style of yoga you're doing, it doesn't even have to be yoga, but, but starting to slow down, listen to yourself, your physical self, experience the sensations of being in your body is so valuable. What about you, Ash? I mean, pretty much everything that Maya said when she said it so beautifully. <laughs> Um, for myself, I've, I found like, I, I discovered yoga for, so I found yoga for sport when I was boxing, when I was wrestling, doing judo. And so yoga can be for yoga and yoga can also be for anything else. So what I love about yoga is you never know what's going to come up for you when you step onto your mat. And it's like Maya said, it's your hundred percent for the day. And sometimes it's also okay to go 50% and to be able to take your foot off the gas, to have that space where you are putting your oxygen mask on first so that you are carving out this time that's uniquely for you. And what I love, love, love what Maya said is that it is more than just like, how's my glucose? How's, how, how am I feeling? But how am I feeling? And listening in deeper and finding the space for quiet away from the diabetes, finding space so that you can really tune in and listen more to what's going on in your body and how that relates to the emotional self as well. In practice, it's, you know, mind, body, spirit, but we, it's easy to leave out the portion of spirit or of soul. And so when we carve out this time for quiet, for solitude, for just ourselves, a lot will come up and giving it the space to breathe through it and to just be present. If you come onto your mat and you lie down for 45 minutes of the hour practice, that's yoga. If you just breathe and don't do anything else, but you focus on your breath and even you go into your mind, that's yoga. And so for people who are very much in their bodies, and I, I mean, I can't speak from experience, but I can imagine that there's a lot of what's right, what's wrong. And when something's wrong, you have to move into action and fix it because your health and your life depends on it. But to be able to step back from what's right, right and wrong and to just be in your body is an incredibly, incredibly powerful tool. So I think yoga is for everybody and especially for people with diabetes to have that extra space to be in your body in a different sense. And I, 
I think something that's really common to experience when you begin practicing, if you're, if you're just starting is this sensation of a lot of like feelings of anger or disappointment that you have to deal with this. I think there was a moment in our teacher training where we'd had a day of silence and we were sharing about what our experience was. And at the end of that day, I was just so sad because all day everyone was silent and I was making decisions about my diabetes management all day, you know, 24 hours of me continuing to have to make these decisions. And I was really disappointed. And I think it's totally okay to feel that way. It's totally healthy and good to let yourself have those feelings. I think they're going to come up and understanding that it's normal, understanding that that sensation of like, we have so much an incentive to like be strong and power through, but that can often be at the detriment of us feeling our feelings. Right. And, and if, you know, your yoga practice brings that up, that's okay. It's, it's, it's good. It's important. You need to give yourself space for that. Um, in your life, you can't, you will never make it from diagnosis to death without experiencing these feelings. So giving yourself the space to feel them, to check in, you know, I felt this way recently. Um, you know, how am I feeling now? You're going to feel different day to day. You're going to have different experiences of what it means to be diabetic, what it means to be, you know, living the life that we live and giving yourself the room in your day to day to actually pause and feel it. Yeah, that mm-hmm. mind body connection is in yoga is something that I was it was hard for me to like grasp fully just because like, you know, I'm always thinking about what my body's doing. Like I always have to think about what my how my body feels and like be aware of my body to a degree that I think most people just don't understand or can't really conceive just because they don't have to monitor themselves the way that type 1s do. But I do think that yoga does help you recontextualize that that mind body connection. So like it gives you a different idea of it and a different, the, a more positive one, maybe not positive, but just like a different one that isn't as stressful as maybe having to like constantly like look at your hands and make sure they're not shaking. So yeah, that's why I've been doing yoga for as long as I have. And it is something that I think more people should take advantage of whether you're type one or, t- or not. Mm-hmm. Any final thoughts or anything that you'd like to tell the type one world or people or maybe even type none instructors that are might see that they have a type one person, a uh, type one client or anybody with like, you know, something that they're dealing with during class that they can't really take their mind off of? I feel like I feel like we've touched on I think Maya's point about offering props, about offering modifications, understanding the locations of pumps and how that might be discomfort, especially lying on stomach or on your quad or leg. I think those are really important tools to bring into your practice, whether someone is diabetic or not, or uses devices. And I think being relatable and open is huge. So if you are not a type one, being open to learning and asking questions because you genuinely care about the people in your class. If you are asking these questions that could be answered by Google, go to Google. Otherwise, Ask and actually care and get to know your students on a deeper level so that you understand what's going on in their bodies and what might be coming up. And I think for myself, like I need to educate myself more on like what is going on for my students and to be really present in the classroom so that I can be aware of those subtle cues 
like the shaking or maybe they're mixing up their left and right um, so that I can be aware and best support them. I think that's awesome, Ash. I think if you walk away from this as a type nun, you know, acknowledging that the additional load of your type one students, um, the extra stuff that's going on for them and, and using that understanding to give them a little bit more space. Um, that's what I would hope that you could do. And, and as a type one, like get out there, go practice, go learn. There's amazing resources out there. The Evan Soroka is, a yoga therapist. She's incredible. She has so many free resources, especially right now. She's doing some really cool stuff. I think Rachel Zinman, she's in Australia. She is another awesome type one yogi and, and like go look it up, find out what is going on, learn about uh, your body in a different way. Give yourself permission to experience being you in a less clinical setting. Yeah, I like that. That idea of recognizing that your body just isn't there to like, you know, worry about. Like it can be, it serves you in different ways other than having to monitor or manage your type one for, you know, for the rest of forever. And it does give you, I guess it, it does give you a better sense of a better uh, relationship with your body because I think there is a lot of sense that type one is against you. It's like working against you. It's always going to like get in your way like intentionally, but really type one doesn't really do anything. It's just kind of there and you have to treat your highs or treat your lows and roll with the punches. It's a lot of data, but at the end of the day, it, the data doesn't determine your value. It doesn't determine, you know, I think for me, disassociating my worth with my A1C has been so important and, and resulted in way better diabetes outcomes, right? Like when I found things that I was passionate about beyond getting the lowest possible safe blood glucose values, right? Like go find the things that light you up, that are exciting, that make you feel good. If they're tricky, that's fine. You'll figure it out. I think, you know, you need to get out in the world and, and experience the same things that you would otherwise. And, and yeah, sure. Sometimes stuff's going to get in your way, but you have these opportunities to be in environments that are generally really supportive, like a yoga studio. So you take them. Definitely. Thank you both for sharing your thoughts and telling us all about yoga and how it can help with type one. My pleasure. It was so much fun. If you are interested in learning more about philosophy, you can find us on Instagram at the.feelosophy. And I am Ash Blues at A-S-H-B-L-U-Z or Z, depending where you live. Um, I'm starting some new classes called In My Bed Feels, which is going to be Zoom classes where we are doing restorative yoga from our beds. So I think everyone needs any type of yoga right now. And right now I just want to do everything from my bed. So why not yoga? <laughs> bed yoga. I love it. I'll perfect. see you there. Yeah. Yes. I am located up in Bellingham, Washington. If you're ever in town, look me up. You can find me on Instagram at Maya Jane, M-A-I-A-J-A-N-E. But yeah, I, I'm not, I'm not really plugging anything right now. My life is kind of on this slow roll. Pa- not quite a pause so 
Um, and she's pregnant. I know. So exciting. More baby yogis out in the world. Yes. So excited mm-hmm. for you. Yeah. So we'll see. I mean, by the time everything reopens, I'll probably be on mat leave. So. <laughs> Just in time. Just in time. Just in time.